the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. This week, we're focusing on the business of sport, and I'm joined in studio by my regular co-host for the slot, Michael O'Keefe, Chief Executive of Teneo PSG. Michael, you're very welcome again. Kieran, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Now, later in the show, we'll be discussing Irish cricket's elevation to test status and the countdown to our first test match against Pakistan in Malahide starting on May 11th. Cricket Ireland Chief Executive Warren Dutram will join us in studio, along with Irish Times cricket writer Emmett Reardon. But as usual, we're going to begin with our business of sport wrap-up. Uh, Michael, we're going to talk about, uh, and it pains me to say it, we're going to talk about Liverpool and yes. uh, the whole issue of uh, football agents. Liverpool, of course, uh, qualifying for the semi-finals of the UEFA Champions League. Hip, hip, hooray. Yes, uh, we're all delighted. Yeah, as a Man United Manchester. fan, I, I was hoping they could both get knocked yeah. out, but it's not, not possible, unfortunately. <laughs> but interestingly, according to the Football Association's uh, annual review of the monies paid to uh, football agents, and we know it's a lot these days, uh, Liverpool came out on top of that ranking as well. Yeah, there's a very interesting um, piece of work done and you know there's always been this conversation around the power of, of agents and, and the monies that they make um, and it's quite complicated as well but your kind of staggering number of £211 million uh, pounds was paid out to agents in, in fees last year which is an enormous sum of money when you think about it um, and, and you know they, they're taking anywhere between 8 and 9% and 40% of the overall mm. transfer fee um, and you consider the amount of money that, that players are exchanging hands for even average the players are going for ten and twenty million. You know, it's an enormous market. Um, Liverpool are are top of the league in something anyway. Um, and uh, obviously, with Virgil Van Dijk's move, is one of the one of the big high profile moves of the, of, of the last um, while. Seventy five so, million pounds. Yeah, Salah thirty five. Oxley Chamberlain forty million. Yeah, and and there's always been this kind of murky shadow of agents and you know deals that have been done with managers who prefer certain mm. agents and all that prefer certain clubs and stuff like that um, and this was done over a period that took in the two transfer windows was would have been February 2017 up to Jan 2018 um, but the numbers are absolutely enormous I think when you spread it out across the other leagues within the UK um, it's £257 million pounds, which is up 17% year on year so maybe we'll <laughs> We'll change yeah. career, Kieran. Well, it's quite obscene though, isn't it? 2.5 billion <clears throat> from transfer fees in uh, five years, these these agents have earned. Yeah, and, and UEFA had a stat as well, which was um, 13% of all revenues from transfers from 2013 to mm. 2017 have gone to agents. So it, it just shows you it's, it's this industry in itself that seems to surround football um, for better or for worse. And you just wonder um, how long will it take before the bubble can burst in this because yeah. you wonder is it good sometimes in the interest of the clubs is it in the interest of football Yeah, well given your storied uh, background in uh, soccer Michael uh, with Shamrock Rovers and others I, I'm wondering why you ended up in PR when you could have been a football agent Well there was always the story that I, I was I was the only player Rovers gave a washing machine away to, to get rid of me so I don't <laughs> in the whirlpool days as you'll remember <laughs> alright very good we'll uh, <laughs> well ind- indeed as, uh, as you put it to good use in terms of spinning uh, well, let's, that's, just, uh, absolutely. Let's, just, let's just say that <laughs> let's move on to rugby now good news last weekend obviously with Munster and Leinster winning through or indeed the weekend before that winning through to the European Champions Cup semi-finals yeah. and they've got tough games ahead Leinster uh, fortunately will have a home tie at the Aviva but Munster having to travel to France uh, how much is this going to be worth to the sport here? 
So, <clears throat> like like a lot of competitions, um, the more you progress with the competition, obviously, the more money is, is generated. Um, there are a few who obviously own the the, the provinces. Um, have already had a fantastic financial year where with their bonus structures, um, which this paper covered, of in the region of, of five million euro already for winning the Six Nations. So, when you take that into context here, um, there was three hundred thousand win bonus for both teams the last time round, um, and another um six hundred thousand. For the winner of the of the final and four hundred thousand compensation for the loser of the of the final, so um, Leinster and or Munster hopefully will will get that far, which would be a, a, a significant it, one million extra into the RFU this, coffers. This is money that goes to the RFU rather than the provinces. Well, the, the fact that by going to the provinces, it, it's it's going into the R because the, the accounts which would would account for 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 all. So um, it would go to the provinces first, but you know it, it is Irish rugby where the where the money ends up eventually. Yeah. And what people mightn't realise is that this game in the Aviva, it's a semi-final uh, stage now of this Champions Cup competition. It's not a match that's actually organised by the IRFU. No, it, it's not. Um, so the EPCR actually run this match um, and basically they rent the Aviva uh, and they own the fixture. So it's not a technically a, a home fixture match for, for, Leinster. for, for Leinster or Irish rugby. Um, what, 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 what is interesting is that um, if, if a Parisian team had got this far, they don't play in Paris. But Leinster been you know, primarily a Dublin-based team, although they obviously have a 12-county um, base, can play their game in Dublin and maybe not have to travel to a Belfast or, or Limerick because it's a technically a home country semi-final. But Leinster are allowed to play their game in, yeah. in, in Dublin. All right, chances of both Irish provinces winning? What do you think? Um, I think it'd be fantastic if one got there. You'd have to say Leinster have a far better chance than than Munster and, and a deeper squad. I think it's going to be a huge ask for Munster to go to, to France and win. But... Um, on the final itself, if anybody is, is looking to book, there are no hotel rooms in Bilbao. <laughs> I've looked into this. <laughs> so, so, so. Are maybe, there pubs? Oh, that's the key thing. There are lots are of there pubs. pubs. There are lots of pubs. There's lots of food um, and a beautiful stadium, but there are absolutely no hotel rooms. And I think, um, you know, a fantastic idea to bring uh, a rugby final to the heart of the Basque country, and I get it. But it's but, a soccer um, playing area. Uh, it's a soccer playing area. They're not used to away fans. Um, and it's not a massive tourist town, so there actually isn't the hotel infrastructure. Um, and I think in hindsight, um, you know, I don't know where fans are actually going to stay because they're looking at €900 Euro a hotel room, I think, at the moment, and there's 5% of hotel mm. rooms left, so mm. it's going to be tight. Well, I think of that Christy Moore song, didn't the Jocks are going his van and uh, he, uh, to Stuttgart. And he, well, know, we are in the, the, I think the, he kept in as, as well. I, I'd, I'd, say the, I'd, I'd say that will be how a lot of, uh, a lot yeah. of um, Leinster fans or Munster fans may actually have to have to go um, by boat and, boat and bus or boat and uh, camper van, you know. So, Conor McGregor, uh, he's been a bit of a naughty boy in New York. <laughs> yes, well, um, yes, he's been a, a very naughty boy. And, and, and the, the, the more cynical-minded of us might think that it was all a bit of a stunt, but I... I, well, I, I think it's backfired. I think it's spectacular. It a spectacular backfire. So, Just remind um, people what happened. So, yeah, bef- before um, there was a, a kind of a weigh-in and a UFC meetup, which is a very UFC thing where they have these massive kind of uh, media events, um, McGregor got into a bit of a scrap and his people with uh, another bunch of, of UFC guys. Um, the world been the way it is now. There's a book of the video evidence of this. He was downstairs in a, in a car park underneath a hotel in Brooklyn through something at a, at a bus, uh, which caused the window to smash and injured a, a, a fellow UFC uh, fighter. Um, he's been come down very hard upon by, by Dana White of UFC 
um, and has been and charges were 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 pressed. So, um, you know, precariously for him, I think um, the visa situation is the one he would probably be most concerned about. Mm. Now he can fight outside of America as well, but America in the home of sports business, you don't necessarily want to preclude yourself from earning money in the states. Um, the only thing I'd say is that when you look at the top twenty five sports sports stars in the world, and McGregor is number twenty five. Um, only 10% of his income comes from endorsements and brand ambassador kind of deals, whereas a, a Ronaldo or a Messi, their kind of external reputation and brand is probably much more important to him. And ironically, you know, the notoriety that he's built around himself, like he'll probably sell more pay-per-view packages on the back yeah. of this if he does get into fight again. You would worry that this fella seems to be careering off track a little bit to say the least um, and you'd like to think that he can he can steady the steady himself and get back into You might say it was a, a whopper of a mistake uh, which yes. ties in neatly perhaps <laughs> with his 10 million sponsorship deal with the popular fast food chain Burger King Yes and he does have a have a, a number of sponsors like Monster Energy and a few of these guys um, Reebok uh, Bud Light um, he's also got his own uh, style of whiskey without an E I think as well which was also covered by this yeah. paper um, Notorious so, maybe who's fueled up with that when, when this thing <laughs> happened Anyway uh, right let's talk about we're going to finish now on some sponsorship deals we've yeah. uh, five that we're going to rattle through um, we've got Indian Premier League uh, sponsorship we've got some UK Rugby uh, soccer, uh, a couple of soccer ones actually involving the uh, FIFA World Cup, which of course is coming up in the summer, and also uh, some uh, relates to Roma, uh, the Italian football club that heroically pulled off that famous comeback yes, against all, Barcelona last night. All very timely stuff. So we're going to hear from cricket now in a minute. But um, the Mumbai Indians, where cricket is absolutely enormous in in, in India, as, mm. as we'll probably hear later on, um, they've done a huge deal with Samsung um, in their stadium. Um, but would also see a kind of a T20 theme sale of mobile You'd be products. A big fan now of the the Mumbai uh, huge cricket fan actually Indians, as well. Yeah. yeah, and and obviously followed the Indian Premier League quite. And I'm quite sure you closely. have a Samsung TV. So I absolutely have a Samsung. There's, there's TV a certain synergy and a here Samsung for you, phone. Yes, so all of the above. Uh, another deal we saw um, was um, rugby. A big deal in rugby actually, where um, insurance giant Arthur J Gallagher will replace Aviva as the title sponsor of, of, mm. of English rugby. Now I know it's a thing or two about insurance and about business, Michael. And I have to confess, I've never heard of Arthur J Gallagher. I have to say I hadn't myself but they are a US insurance giant Kieran I allow right. you reliably know Okay well uh, well, you know, most <laughs> things in, in the US are giant but anyway alright uh, close to home a newly based company Statsports which the Irish Times has been writing about quite a bit mm. uh, of late they've signed a very lucrative deal with uh, the Brazil Football Federation ahead of the World Cup Tell us yeah, about Statsports uh, These guys are going from strength to strength um, as you say an, an, an Irish company um, and one of a few Irish kind of uh, sports companies that are doing well globally this is a really big high profile deal and it's kind of been on these sports pro sports business websites in the last couple of days so they've done a deal with the Brazilian national soccer team to be their players monitoring devices so those things that you see the trackers that players um, wear yes, I think Lee Keegan threw one at Dean Rock at the end of the yeah I, I think I might have slipped out of his hands yeah so um, didn't put Dean off thankfully um, you see the black object coming yeah but it is that kind of kind of deal so um, but enormously successful and, and you know you have to say it's great to see an Irish company do so well um, they also work with England Man United Man City Liverpool etc so right okay now uh, consumer electronics company Hisense from China has become an official sponsor of the World Cup in Russia and of the FIFA Confederations uh, Cup as well. What's yeah, the so, of this? Well, I, I think it's the interesting piece of this is that um, the FIFA World Cup has actually struggled to get regional sponsors. Um, there's been a bit of a cloud around Russia um, been hosting this and there's obviously a lot of uh, negativity towards Russia at, at the moment as well and they've actually struggled to 
um, attract major multinationals to sponsor the World Cup itself. Um, but we have seen a number of Chinese companies come in as regional partners, as they call them. It would be very late normally for this to be the case. So you would often find that a sponsor will come in two years out and do all their bits and bobs that they need to do. In saying that, FIFA have still, you know, got the likes of, of Budweiser and McDonald's and all the usual people that they would have had. But, you know, you would say that commercially, mm. um, the the Russian uh, World Cup so far, um, there would be question marks about its its, its success to attract uh, sponsors. Right, OK. We, we mentioned Roma. They had a very famous victory against Barcelona last night in the UEFA Champions League. Put them into the semi-finals. They came from three goals behind um, to win and put Barcelona out of the competition. And they've signed a, a sponsorship deal with Hyundai. Yeah, and similar to uh, your own um, Shamrock Rovers, who are a partner of Hyundai. Kieran. Well, I like to think of Shamrock Rovers as being similar to Roma, actually. <laughs> Michael, now that you mention it. We all do. Um, but yes, a great, great result for, for Roma last night. And interesting, they've been out without a shirt sponsor since 2013, which, you know, would, would make you think um, that uh, Italian soccer has been at a fairly low ebb. Um, outside of Juventus, there's been a, a bit of a struggle. They've had problems with stadia, problems with violence, racism and so on. But, um, Corruption. you know, Corruption, yeah, uh, and, and and a lot of other issues as well. But it seems to be that Italian soccer is having a bit of a bit of a comeback, which is great. Mm. Well, no, mind uh, you, they missed out in the World Cup. The they did miss out in the World Cup, and they missed out. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm more focused on the Syria teams. Um, but yes, you're correct to to state that they did miss out on on the World Cup. But this is a big deal for them. Um, and I suppose the surprising piece for me here is that they were out of sponsor for so long. Um, and they are, I think, looking the way Juve have gone from the kind of the big old fashioned municipal stadium with the track and all that, which was quite an old fashioned style, to a, a kind of a smaller ground, the Stadio della Roma, apparently is where they're going to be moving to. All right. OK, uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking about Ireland's elevation to the top table of global cricket with Cricket Ireland CEO Warren Dusham. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. This week, we're focusing on the business of sport and I'm joined in studio by my co-host for the slot, Mick O'Keefe of Teneo PSG. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. All right. And we're also joined in studio, I'm delighted to say, by uh, Cricket Ireland Chief Executive Warren Dutram and by the Irish Times cricket writer, Emmett Reardon. And huge excitement in Irish cricket circles at the minute ahead of next month's historic first ever test match against Pakistan in Malahide. And this, of course, will be followed by a T20 series against India in June. Warren is Chief Executive of Cricket Ireland and in his 11-year tenure, Ireland has grown in stature in world cricket and was recently awarded full member status of the ICC, one of only 12 nations in the world to receive that status. It was a long, a long-running campaign by Ireland, uh, Warren, and one that you, I know, were, were centrally involved in. So you must be delighted to be on the cusp of this first test match against uh, Pakistan. How are preparations going? Um, well, I hope. Um, on a pretty regular basis, I get updates from the marketing and sales team about how we're doing on ticketing and hospitality. Um, we have, I think, only ever sold maybe a maximum of about 
15,000 tickets in any one year previously. Um, and they now, would have been for one-day games. They would have been for one-day games, exactly. We've now given ourselves a target to sell of 30,000, um, in fact, 31,000 to be precise. So, yeah, it's a uh, stretch target. Um, so how many are gone? We're, we're halfway there at the moment. Um, with, I think, 14, 8, 15, something like that, as of this morning, with a month to go. So in terms of um, pre-sales being more than halfway at this stage, it's better than we've ever done beforehand. We've, for the first time, we've really done a lot more in terms of external marketing. Sort of, you've seen the backs of buses, and uh, we've seen sort of, you know, big 48 sheet posters in Malahide, and uh, bus shelters in parts, of, um, in parts of Dublin as well. So in terms of visibility, I think, and I hope we're giving ourselves the best chance. Yeah, very good. And just in terms, I mean, what's this going to be worth in revenue terms for for Cricket Ireland? Um, Well, in terms of tickets and hospitality match income this year, we'd be looking at round about 570, 580,000 in terms of the revenue. That's purely ticketing and hospitality. Um, If we look on top of that broadcast, that's a much bigger revenue stream. Um, We'd be looking in terms of broadcast to hit both in terms of overseas and domestic sales round about 1.8 million euros this year. So we've real We've really sort of crossed, uh, I think, Rubicon in terms of the amount of revenue we're generating from broadcast sales previously. It was very much, well, frankly, when I was selling it myself, didn't really know the market well enough, picked up the phone to a few people I know. Um, now we've engaged a an overseas agency called Pitch International who work with a number of the um, overseas boards in mm. New Zealand, Australia, England, etc. They know the market very well. They engage with all the broadcasters. That's put us into an entirely new platform or level in terms of our ability to, I suppose, sweat the asset, which is, if you look at it in terms of um, the business model of the vast majority of pre-existing full members, it's driven nearly exclusively, or to a large extent, I should say, by broadcast sales. And we're just beginning to dip our toe into that water. So for us, it's an exciting potential revenue stream in the future. For those who want to watch the game, you know, those living in Ireland who want to watch the game live, uh, where can they see it? Um, we're going to be making an announcement of that hopefully early next week, both in terms of um, live ball-by-ball coverage on television, on radio and highlights too. And feel free to announce it here exclusively, Warren. As well. <laughs> but um, just in terms of, of, of broadcast, I'm always fascinated yep. by cricket. was one of the first to embrace YouTube in India and so forth. Um, is there a view to maybe uh, kind of diversifying your, your broadcast partners, so to speak, particularly with such a vast audiences in, in, in Asia and so on? Um, the short answer is yes. Uh, the slightly longer answer is because we've never traditionally had to rely upon broadcast income in order to, I suppose, get to the stage we are at the moment, i.e. Um, getting towards test status, in many ways, it's cream. A lot of the existing um, test nations are fascinated by how, how we've actually managed to build the business without relying upon broadcast income. And why haven't we? Well, because we've never had sufficient fixtures planable over a lengthy period of time to get there. So in other words, rather than necessarily looking at saying, well, let's try and sweat every single um, one of our fixtures through a linear broadcast model, maybe we can be a little bit more innovative. Mm. So... I think with the test and T20, because they're especially against India and looking at the Asian market, because they're very um, significant markets um, financially. And I think that's one of cricket's unique selling points, the ability to penetrate that South Asian market, particularly India. Um, It gives us an opportunity to perhaps be a little bit more innovative with our um, 
uh, Afghan fixtures, which we're playing three ODIs and three T20Is yeah. in, um, uh, in August. So it may give us a chance to say, well, maybe we could look at a Facebook and mm. um, that sort of thing, which is, you know, uh, I like the idea of being the first to do something or being innovative in cricket. That's, uh, that's something that excites me. Just take a step back a little bit, and for mm. those maybe not familiar with Cricket Ireland, could you give us a sense of the organisation that is Cricket Ireland, the revenue, the commercial partners, and, and, and how that's all made up? Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe the best way to start is where were we? I arrived at the end of 2006, um, and by that stage I'd have had the annual accounts from 2005 to look at. And um, that would have been, our turnover at that stage was about €260,000, we're projecting this year to be around about 9.2, 9.3 million. Um, so it, it's obviously grown exponentially in terms of participation figures. We've grown quite significantly. Sorry, to stick to your question, we would have had um, of that probably round about 30, 35, 40% back in 2006 was government income. Now government income is about 720 between Sport Northern Ireland and the and Sport, Sport Ireland. Ireland yeah. And that's around about 8% of turnover. Um ICC accounts now for about 50% of our revenue, um, which is very significant. But interestingly, um, that was about 50% last year when we were 6 million. So we've had to do, we've had to work really hard to generate more income. So sponsorship wise between cash and in kind, it's now around about 1.4, 1.5 million euros. We've got a spread of about 14, 15 partners. Our headline partner is our it's Turkish Airlines, which is the men's senior squad partner, which for us was terrific because mm. it's a you know a national carrier. It's very aggressive um, in terms of their marketing. It's terrific for us. We can obviously leverage off that. Um, broadcast now, I think I mentioned, is about 1.8 million. Mm. Um, with another five, 600,000 in terms of match income, we've had to work really, really hard in self-generated income. And I think that's been one of the real strengths of Cricket Island over the years. Yeah, that's a big success story, but I presume costs have gone up in the meantime too. Yeah, they have. Um, and um, one of the, I suppose, one of the challenges of an organisation our size is that um, achieving test status comes with a whole series of obligations, and one of which is um, running a test match. And running a test match on a greenfield site is incredibly expensive. So whereas last year... It was our, our uh, events program cost about 1.3 million euros. This year, we project it's going to cost about 2.7 million euros. That's, that's the cost of staging games that's the cost, in Malahide. That's the cost of staging games. In fact, that's our entire events program. Um, not just Malahide, but the reason it's expanded so much is because of the cost of test cricket and T20s as well. Um, we're also paying for all the costs of um, pretty much everything in terms of the temporary infrastructure that goes into a game. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was, whether it was Emmett or whether it was Jess Siggins, but the phrase pop-up stadium perfectly illustrates exactly what you're looking at. It's a mm. greenfield site. Yeah. And um, oddly well, it's enough... It's Malahide Castle there for, for people who know Malahide Castle. That's right. Uh, that's right within the Malahide Castle grounds. Yeah. And um, uh, oddly enough, the only thing you can't see on a match day is the only thing that's permanently there all the time, which is the pavilion. Um, but it's the thing that because it's... Um, uh, because it's not um, accredited for international usage because of the size of dressing rooms and the facilities. We have to bring every single thing in mm. in terms of players changing, match officials changing, match officials working areas, VIP areas, um, mm. everything. It's, so, uh, Warren, just it's in terms of this, it's a five-day test match against Pakistan. It's your first sort of dipping of a toe in the water of test match cricket. What's the income from that match for uh 
Cricket Ireland, hopefully, you know, providing everything goes to plan. And what's the expenditure? Um, the match itself is around about 1.1 million euros in terms of cost. Um, it won't wash its face um, as a standalone test match. Um, so we'll be relying upon the revenues from the T20 games, particularly the overseas broadcast revenues to offset. <clears throat> the revenues that we'd be expecting from the test match, um, I don't have the breakdown of broadcast, because what we tend to do is we tend to aggregate all the broadcast revenues across all the matches that we play in all of the against all the targets or markets we're selling in. Um, but I can tell you it's going to be a loss. And by and large, I think you would find that Across the world, Test cricket tends to be loss making, yeah. um, and particularly when you're doing it in a um, um, uh, in a greenfield site without permanent facilities. Okay, we might talk to you a little later on just about your plans for a new stadium. I want to bring Emmett in at this point because Emmett, you've been writing about the Irish cricket team and, and their successes on the field now for a, a number of years. So it must be very exciting to be on the cusp of a home first Test match. Uh, you know, the hand of history uh, on, on your shoulder, perhaps. Um, uh, but but also maybe just explain to us what the import. Uh, of this elevation to test statuses for Irish cricket? Well, I think we only have to look back to uh, the events in South Africa and obviously because of what happened in South Africa with the ball tampering in Australia, where it was a national scandal. And they say the captain of uh, the Australian cricket team is more important than the Prime Minister. And looking at Australian politics, I'm not too surprised with that. But... In, test cricket is the pinnacle. I mean, I'm looking back in the history books, and this is our first test coming up. New Zealand, it took them uh, 26 years to win their first test. So we're talking about a return on investment. Everything is recorded in test cricket. It goes back, the history is there of every match, so that we can enter in, and Afghanistan, let's say, as well, because um, there's two teams starting off, but obviously Ireland are playing in the first test. It's just fantastic that we enter into this history. We 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 are slotting in, and I think... Anyone who's interested in cricket in Ireland, it, 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 it will be a magical, I think it'll be an emotional day. And for, even for the journalists, I know, because and uh, Warren and everyone in Cricket Ireland, I think it'll be, there'll be a lot of emotion when it comes to the event itself. But it does put us on the, on the highest level. And we also there, just to give Warren <laughs> a bit of kudos here, um, this is two years ahead of what was an optimistic strategic plan by Cricket Ireland. So it was 2020. I was actually looked back at the material before uh, yesterday. So we're ahead of schedule. And uh, looking back in longer into the history of of of, uh, of, of Cricket Ireland, um, you know, there was warnings about, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. Like this, this is a warning, like because of our fixture list. I looked back at an old report where there was disappointing sales and including the, 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 the sales of ties, which, which, which was costing the income of Cricket Ireland. So in the 21 years, and this is back in 1996 when I started covering it, um, and you look back at what it was, mm. where the biggest game was the Duchess of Norfolk's eleven in Arundel Castle in England. And, you know, suddenly we went into playing, you know, one-day matches in England. Suddenly our international schedule, one-day one day matches, when we look at 1996, was it, uh, against uh, England in Stormont? 2006. 2006, yeah. sorry, yes, of course. And it's kind of built up, but in the last five or ten years, the, the, the change is incredible. Yeah, and of course we've had these cricket, uh, famous uh, Cricket World Cup yeah. victories, both in 50 over and a, a T20 format. But another benefit, I suppose, Emmett, of uh, Test Match status is that it might hopefully prevent the bleed of some of our best young talent to the English cricket side. We've seen Owen Morgan is obviously captain of England's uh, 50 over and 20 over teams, but he, he played Test Matches uh, for England as well. And uh, Joyce and uh, Boyd Rankin also declared for him. They're both now back in the Irish ranks. Yeah, I think it's also, well, I'll just say it's a helper and hindrance. Um, from next year, um, and Irish cricketers will not really be playing in county cricket. Um, 
but now there's a first-class structure in Ireland. This is the most important thing, and I think, Warren, like there's a lot of money spent in the first-class structure and, and uh, keeping cricketers here in Ireland and giving them a meaningful level of cricket to play in. It won't be at the level of the county championship for a long time. These things take time to build up. But if these players are playing here all the time, we've already had players come back from county cricket and are playing in, in, in the uh, in the interprovincial series. So these things are vital to, to bring it into it. But we will not, uh, our players, unless they're absolutely exceptional players. And let's be honest, this was a golden generation. I mean, for Ed Joyce and Owen Morgan, Kevin O'Brien, Niall O'Brien, Boyd Rankin, for all these guys to come along together at the same time, and I'm leaving plenty of them out there, it's an incredible golden generation. And we can see how hard it is to develop an international cricketer. And we have some young players coming through now who are fantastic. Andrew Balburney is establishing himself in the, the side. Obviously, Paul Sterling is a veteran of multiple hundreds of caps, but he's still only kind of mid-twenties or so. So it's a tough job, um, but, but the development of, the, inter, of the, the structure in Ireland, the interprovincial structure, is huge to it, and it has to, that's where a huge amount of money has been put. <coughs> yeah, and it's yeah, by too. far and away are, are, are probably the biggest legacy that... Um, uh, Whenever, whenever I shuffle off the um, Cricket Island coil, um, the the biggest legacy I think I'll leave, would, I hope, will be provincial union growth development. Mm-hmm. We were always very much a, a club game, and there was some international cricketers, as as Emmett referred to earlier on. Um, we're always very much more club based with a few international fixtures. We then became club based with a load of international fixtures and more into the future. And what was happening was, the more our the more international cricket we were playing, um, the higher standard we were playing of cricket, the leap from club to country was becoming enormous. Um, so what we needed to do as quickly as possible was put in place that middle structure, provincial unions. And then what we found was that even just putting in place the cricket side of it, all of the other stuff comes in, which is how are they going to commercialise, how are they going to sweat that asset, how are they going to develop appropriate revenue streams, governance structures. And that's the really big part of the jigsaw I'm trying to do at the moment, working with our provincial unions, who, by the way, are are fantastic in terms of their willingness to embrace change in terms of the game. If I look back 10 years, changed our governance structure at Cricket Island, which was something that the game had to embrace. Were they prepared to slim down an executive committee of 18 people, 19 people, to a a board of only 11 or 12, including independent directors? We introduced the interprovincial structure. We asked the um, provincial unions whether they would change their um, uh, their top domestic leagues in terms of the number of teams playing in it, so we could get best v best and thereby create the space for interprovincial matches. We've really had massive support from those provincial unions, and that for me is a massive focus because that's going to be that's going to be, I think, the real. Um, fulcrum on which the game is going to pivot in the future because we're not going to be anything in terms of strength of um, either our club game which um, which is enormously important to develop the players and that's where players for the interpros come from and internationally of course unless we're testing at that lower level down we're never going to find international cricketers how much inspiration did you take from rugby in that in, in this country um we went through a very similar process yeah 20, yeah 20 we, we did and in fact um I've spoken to Philip Brown on a couple of occasions. He's extremely generous with mm. his time and with his staff's time as well in terms of, Philip, how did you do this? How did you do that? Certainly before we, um, it wasn't so much on the playing structure, but it was more on the governance structure, ownerships. And it's a fascinating model. And of course, with this year's Six Nations, you can really see, whereas previously, was it two or three years ago, mm, Ireland team isn't doing too well and some of the... Um, 
some of the provinces weren't performing that well and it was suddenly well is the provincial model quite right now everyone's praising it to the sky saying wow isn't it brilliant and this top-down ownership from the irfu and that was really helpful to us to understand do we want the governance model whereby irfu is in charge and almost like a benevolent dictator supporting all the provincial unions in terms of their their growth um, or is it going to be a bit like a, an ICC where all of the members hold the vast majority of the power? And trying to find a governance structure that pulls yeah. those two forces together is, is fascinating. And we are right in the kernel of that at the moment. <clears throat> just just one, one question for you again on, on, on cricket and, and the playing population. Um, we're a very busy sporting nation and we have indigenous sports as well, obviously, which complicates the picture, I suppose, for international sport. Um can you give us a sense of the playing numbers? You, you almost touched on it there. And, and also where cricket has been traditionally strong and where maybe there's growth potential for cricket. Sure. Um, once again, I'll go back to 2006 when I arrived. The numbers were about 11,000, I say about, because we didn't have really the means to be able to count those properly. Uh, now we we tend to say about 50, 52,000. Now, um, are those people, is that 52,000 who regularly play the game, club cricket, weekend um weekend in weekend out no um the numbers of regular players has probably fluctuated only you know to a small degree from eleven thousand. what we've done is put more bits on the ground through development officers um more support to our provincial unions to be able to introduce the game to more people through uh, clubs schools development offices etc mm-hmm. our trick is to transform or to convert that I suppose, involvement into lifelong participation through clubs. Traditionally, clubs more than schools, though, would that be correct? Traditionally, clubs more than schools. Mm. And there's a there's almost a practical reason for that. The school, uh, the cricket playing term is pretty short. Mm. I mean, if we're talking about the summer term, that's always cut down by, well, I think we mentioned weather a little bit earlier on, and the small mean and the small measure of exams. So the important thing is to try and get kids into club life yeah. because that lasts throughout a very lengthy summer, and that's where we do have a benefit. You've got three months, June, July, August to summertime where cricket has the opportunity to, to go back to your early question, potentially co-own the summer yeah. with, with hurling. And that's, yeah. a, you know, that's a great opportunity we have. And obviously we have this international consideration as well. And with, a, uh, with I guess, a lot of immigration into mm-hmm. Ireland from South Asian communities, that gives us the opportunity to introduce people to the game whom we don't have to tell Look, it's a great game. You can love it. They're already come with this yeah. inbuilt, hardwired affection for the sport. And the, the challenge there is actually to say, well, how and where can I access it? Rather yeah. than, here's a great sport you might give a try to. Yeah. Uh, Emmett, we missed out on the Cricket World Cup. That was a big disappointment. Obviously great to have Test Match Cricket, but everybody wants to be playing at the World Cup next year in England, 2019. But unfortunately, the ICC changed the structure of the tournament. We had to go through a qualifier and we didn't make it. It's a big blow, isn't it? It's a huge blow. Um, it's in England and Wales. And um, it, the format is you play nine matches. Um, and this is because of India. And this goes back to the 2007 uh, World Cup where Ireland knocked out Pakistan and Bangladesh knocked out India. So the, the famous game between India and Pakistan was Ireland beating Bangladesh. And after that, that was never going to happen again. It's to do with TV. So they want India want nine games on television. But Ireland playing nine games... In our next door neighbour, now post Brexit or, or whatever, it would still be easy enough to get over to the, to the matches. Um, it's a huge blow. Uh, the and I'm sure Warren would talk about it that the exposure of that to Ireland live on television as well is massive, and it, it does it does leave a gap. And it's in our summer; it's all that mm. that's going on as well. So it's a huge blow. Yeah, and um, I will say yes and no. 
I'll say yes and no because uh, I don't want to be retrospectively saying, oh, well, we never bothered about the World Cup or didn't really care about it that much. Yes, it, look, did we want to qualify? Absolutely. Is it as mortal, perhaps, a blow as it might have been in the past? The answer to that, I think, is emphatically no. And I remember saying at our annual awards last year that um, by virtue of getting test status, what always happened in the past is that we performed well at a qualifier, we got to a World Cup, and we had this massive spotlight shone on Irish cricket for the you know couple of weeks leading into the event, and then maybe the six, seven, in fact, cricket World Cup lasts about nine weeks, isn't it? But that period of the event... And then we sort of slunk into this obscurity between what's going to happen is nearly going to be the opposite now. We're going to have the visibility in between the World Cups and we're going to miss the, I guess, the opportunity um, that we would otherwise have had to have that global spotlight. Um, And I guess for the Irish public, because they've only ever known the World Cup and they've never known the stuff in between, until the stuff in between starts, i.e. test matches, games against India... T20s, ODIs against Pakistan, sorry, um, Afghanistan, and then overseas cricket, which we're going to have, people are then going to see, okay, well, it's now a much more regular hit, visible, sort of plays into this whole uh, making cricket mainstream um, catch line that we've come up with, which is, yes, we want to be much more culturally visible, culturally ubiquitous out there with the, the rugbys and the Gaelics and the footballs of this world, which I know if I'd said that, Three or four years ago, I'd have been strapped to a gurney and whipped off to the, you know, and whipped off to an institution. But now I believe that is well, that's feasible. Just to say, like, back to the point, it's wrong in the first place. The ICC having a 10-team World Cup is ridiculous. A uh, former colleague of yours, Andrew Leonard, did, a, did all the major field sport World Cups and he did a map, coloured in map, and it went viral. And it's just incredible the, the, the lack of, you know, uh, like 10 countries playing in a World Cup while every other sport is expanding. But uh, we won't go there, really. We've, we've, yeah, we've well, been look, through it. Look, but look, let me not be um, in any way disingenuous. I mean, to, to say that um, uh, I know I was um, involved to a large degree in trying to overturn some of the former decisions around the 10-team World Cup. To, uh, I'm not going to plead the fifth on it now. Do I agree with it? No. Um, have I made my point um, behind the scenes? Absolutely. Will I continue to do so? Absolutely. It's something we do not agree with whether we've qualified for the event or not. And I'm trying not to make it sound as if it's sour grapes, that the only reason we're fighting it is because we now haven't qualified. Don't agree with the 10-team World Cup for all the reasons that Emmett has eloquently said. What do you say to the criticism, and maybe Emmett, you could answer this as well, around that maybe test status has, has come a little late for the golden generation of Irish cricket, or, or is that a fair statement to make? It, it, it's probably true from the, from the point of view of, like, Ed Joyce is, um, is hanging in there. He's had... Uh, various operations but he wants to stay on and, and play in the first test but will he be playing test cricket in two or three years time it's not it's not going to be the case and a lot of that that golden generation are heading into their you know early 30s and stuff like that um, yeah but if we look back at it you know three or four years ago would it have been I'm asking you Aaron like, mm. would, it, would it have been too early um, why do we become a test nation why do we chase it um I suppose there's a practical thing, which is um, to have waved all the all the flags and say, "Yeah, you were a full member." Mm. It would have been lots of shoulder shrugging here and saying, "What's that? Who cares?" Um, Test nation is the the tag. That's the thing that people can get behind. And um, there was a uh, there was a period in the run up to the decision being made last year where there was still a big question mark because the game is disinclined to want to create more Test nations because of the incredible cost that there is on those nations to, to have to pay for it. So why did we do it? We did it because um, it's the best. 
So if we had remained an associate, it's almost by definition second best. Test cricket's the best, it's the pinnacle, it's what all of the former players, current players, media say is the primary format. Therefore, if we weren't pursuing it, we'd be second best. Number and yes, Warren, can I just cut across you there and yeah. say that a lot of people lately are saying that test cricket is dead because the crowds at test cricket across the world are appalling. Uh, and if you strip out, let's say, the ashes between England and Australia, you know, test cricket uh, is interesting. Test cricket is doing, particularly the West Indies, it used to be a huge force back in the 70s and yep. 80s. And it's, you know, a lot of their top star players are deciding not to play test cricket. They're playing, yep. uh, you know, they're playing T20 or they're playing 50 over cricket. And to say the ICC isn't aware of that would be incorrect. So I'm aware of the fact that at the moment there's a big strategic review which is, yeah, you know, the usual thing, bit of navel-gazing every four years, what you do about the next four years. Now, the ICC, it's not just doing it from the perspective of, let's look at it as an organisation, it's looking at where do we see world cricket, and it's not where do we see world cricket in the next four years, it's putting it underneath a vision. You know, the strategy should fit beneath a much bigger view of where the sport's going to be by 2030, and where do we see test cricket in that time? Um, so... To say that it, the game isn't trying to address it and recognising it, and will it be four-day matches? Will it be four-day matches run Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, get rid of the Monday dead day? Um, can we look to have more matches played from uh, on a floodlit basis? Should we play so much test cricket? And that's certainly the view that Cricket Island takes. We don't think we should be playing more than maybe one or two matches a year. Um Let's introduce context to test cricket. At the moment, it's just nation v. nation. Uh, yeah, OK, well, that's just got some historical context. It doesn't have competitive context. The introduction of the test league is supposed to do all that. Now, you can say, well, let's throw another two or three things at it. And then you're never quite sure well, which one worked and which one didn't work. So I think the three things that I've mentioned, mm. reducing the number of days, looking more at floodlit games, um, uh, maybe reducing the number, less is more, and then putting context into the league structure, competitive structure. I think those are three or four pretty decent innovations which will hopefully try and arrest some of the considerations. But there's no doubt. I mean, if you're looking for one stat that is going to make all those who love the game sit up and take notice, it's the fact that in the Indian broadcast market, um, the same value is ascribed to a T20 game that lasts three hours as there is to a test match. Mm. And if you're looking from a business perspective about, well, what should I, as a, um, as a person managing our sport, invest in, you know, in terms of return on investment, well then, yeah, dot, dot, dot. it's like so. You know, the Irish soccer team plays at the Viva, the Irish rugby team plays at the Viva, GA, big games are at Croke Park. In cricket, it's different. You don't have a permanent base as such. Games, Bob about Malahide, uh, Stormont, other venues have been used around the country as well. Turf, don't forget. Uh, indeed. <laughs> and I remember going to see Ireland play Wales in cricket many years ago in Kimmich. It's now Ben Din, uh, Dunn uh, Gym, but it used to be, uh, I think, the Carlisle Cricket Club Carlisle used, to, uh, it? Yeah, used to play there. So, but you're hoping to resolve that problem by getting a new base out in Abbasan. Where, where are you at? We, well, um, yes and no. So we are, we are resolving um, the issue of where we're going to play, play our um, Dublin base matches um but cricket has a tradition and cricket has a tradition of taking its matches around its country so australia does it all the way across its six territories um similarly with england as well across you know the the, the test match or the international venues why because there's so much international cricket so much international cricket played on any given pitch 
wears a pitch out. And so you just need a whole um, series of fixtures. So our rationale was we needed to be able to put in place a a series of venues that's going to be able to accommodate the increase in fixtures we were going to have by entering into the Future Tours programme and the Test Cricket Pantheon um, uh, over the next four to five years. So to take it to Dublin at the moment, we were looking initially at Malahide Cricket Club, um, but um, for, for the various reasons that we sort of spelled out when we announced it a couple of years back, um, simply the, um, you know, the, 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 the number of times we're going to need to use that venue. Um, you know, these, these are members of a cricket club who would want to be able to pay their subscription to be able to use their venue. With the extraordinary increase of matches that we're going to have, we were going to get to the stage whereby we were going to use it to the extent that almost to the exclusion of their existing members. There also we had to think about future proofing of the of the whole um, uh, of our permanent infrastructure, which is you tend to find that what are um, nice to haves within international requirements become minimum standards, and the not even the nice to haves at the moment are would probably take it to the extent whereby we would have to go construct something that would be well beyond um, um, the requirements within a, a sensitive environmental area like Malahide Castle. Um, and thirdly, the point of building a permanent stadium is to make sure that we're not mm. going to have to be spending all the money that I mentioned year that we're going to have year. to spend on a, on a greenfield site. We should be investing all that money back into the sports, grassroots, clubs, provincial unions, development activity, but we can't because we're having to invest in it to nearly just wash its face in terms so of... So uh, Abbottstown, yes. Sorry, you asked me the question ten minutes ago. I'm just getting around now. Um, yes, Abbottstown National Sports Campus. Um, our view is that that's going to be the place that we want to put it in. We want to be able to develop our national stadium. We're in conversations now with National Sports Campus, Sport Island. Right, what size footprint do you need? What facilities do you need? What? How does drainage going to work? How should we phase this? How much money do you how need? How big is the press box? all of those very important questions how big is the press box yes those that's where we're looking at at the moment so when do we get a decision when when might ireland play its first game in abbasound if you know with a fair wind you're back um fair wind uh 2022 i reckon um so let's say we get a decision this year money begins to flow in 2019 um building the green stuff um is the issue you can't just lay down a uh a, a set of grass nice flat and play on it within a month as can happen in rugby or Gaelic or football because the cricket pitch block is a very specialised piece of agronomy which is it requires years to bed down special mm. clay what special about a drop in pitch? Um, do you know what we looked to that you know potentially even when we were thinking about potentially ground sharing but the costs to be able to drop it in stick it on trays put it next door have to construct special greenhouses that need to be heated um, number one, it's incredibly expensive. Number two, takes a lot of space. And number three, as Emmett would know from the um, uh, Boxing Day test, um, Australia, England, the Ashes, if the MCG struggle to be able to afford to develop a pitch that isn't going to be fined by the ICC and potentially liable to um, losing its ability to host matches, then Cricket Island will certainly struggle, at least for the next 20 years. Yeah. Last question for me is um, on, I suppose, outside of the cricket world, um, a lot of the Irish players wouldn't be all that well known, I think, to the sporting public. Do you think it's important that Cricket Ireland puts an emphasis on creating, I suppose, superstars for young kids to aspire to? And I suppose it's 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 an irony in some respect that some of our top players are probably better known in, in India than they will be in, in, in this market. 
Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so to illustrate your point, um, uh, I remember on a couple of occasions, uh, Kevin O'Brien can probably walk down the streets of Sandy Mount and uh, he might turn a couple of heads. <laughs> the hard um, streets of Sandy But uh, yes, that, uh, but... Um, <laughs> I can tell you the uh, he'd go to India and he'd be mobbed and he can be, he can barely move. Um, we've just brought on board a media and communications manager. Our first, um, our previous up to this was was um, part time, so we yeah. just brought our brought our first permanent media and communications manager, and um, he's doing a presentation to the board next, in fact, tomorrow, which is going to be outlining the steps he's going to be taking to try and build that um, yeah. try and build that um, profile. I suppose. What have we done till now? We've worked so hard to try and ensure that our team is going to be winning because if our team is winning, then there's profile. If there's profile, there's visibility. If there's visibility, there's interest. And if there's interest, there's the potential for more media. So we've worked very hard to invest in our men's senior squad to win in order to generate the visibility they're looking for. But we're about to get a whole load of fixtures. A whole load of fixtures means they're going to be on television. They're on television with the duration that cricket is um, throughout on a much more consistent basis throughout the year. We're going to begin to be able to have that visibility and build the profiles of those players. And do you think, um, sorry, to, in terms of encouraging people to play cricket, that there's that there were maybe barriers to entry to cricket that people didn't see it as being a particularly Irish game for argument's sake? Do you think those barriers to entry are gone now for, for young kids? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Um, somebody said to me, Yes, that might be the case. But actually, when Ireland starts to win at something, all of those historical barriers yeah. <laughs> tend to go away. I mean, it would be difficult not to stick hockey, rugby and football under the same barrier yeah. of English, which all went away when suddenly winning Six Nations, qualifying for World Cups 1994, suddenly, well, it doesn't feel so, it doesn't feel so English anymore. I can tell you, we, we probably begun to cross that Rubicon in um, March the 2nd, 2011, when we, um, we beat England at the World Cup and yeah. I was the only celebrating English in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Warren um, and Emmett as well. It, it just remains for us to ask uh, to ask you uh, who's going to win this first Test match. It starts on May the eleventh. What what are Ireland's chances? Um, there's always a chance. Would we be favourites? No. Um, we've never played a five day game outside of the um, the Intercontinental Cup final in 2013. I don't even know if that went five days actually. Um, so um, no, we're not going to be favourites. Um, it's going to be intriguing. You never quite know. Is this going to be this incredible expectations are so low, we're suddenly going to knock it out of the park? I remember Bangladesh did extremely well their first test match. Mm. I remember Sri Lanka did well in their first test match as well. There was just this sort of, you know, historical moment bounce that the team seemed to get. Are we going to get the same? Uh, who knows? I'm not going to make a prediction, but do you know what? I'd be really excited and, to see how we and, tackle it. Given this goes for five days, Warren, and presumably you'd like it to last the full five days if, if possible to get as many bums on seats, do you have a little word in the ear of William Porterfield and say, listen, if you win the toss, would you ever put Pakistan in first? Because even if they bat for three days, uh, that's, that's, that's good for us. Look, you may say that I couldn't possibly comment here. I think... Um, it's more like he has a word with Gene Byrne in the Met Office, really. Yeah, I think the yeah. chance could go to a, to a fourth day or whatever. And have we checked the weather? Is this uh, um, uh, this, this far good? out? This far out, it tends to be uh, invidious to look at it. You, you seem you you take um, you, you take sort of um, hope and despair on equal measure at this stage. So well, we'll look at it. Yeah, week out. It's such a bad winter. I can guarantee it's going to be a beautiful summer. You know, That's the spirit. Well, uh, here's hoping it's going to be a big day for Irish cricket, and let's hope uh, the boys put on a great show. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks 
thanks to Warren Dutram and Emmett Reardon. Declan Conlon produced the show with research from Dan O'Neill of Teneo PSG and JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Michael O'Keefe. And until next time, take care.